I'm Deidre. I'm Chelsea. And we're giving you a million murders. Dude, that was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a good one. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. My festus, or my, <laughs> my fetus fans. Fetus fans. Oh, my God. Myra will get that. <clears throat> yes. Okay. So, we are back. Um, you know, uh-uh. We're, you know, trying to hurry up and record because it is supposed to snow this weekend, which it will be two weeks from now whenever, you know. Y'all hear this, so just know that's when this was happening. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and get right to it. All right. Yes, I'm doing the Velisca Axe Murders. Ooh. Yes. So this one will be a little bit of murder. Well, a lot of bit of murder. Unsolved. <laughs> I don't know why I ask anymore. <laughs> um... Yes, it is unsolved. I'm sorry, everybody. But it's unsolved, but we'll probably know who it is. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's unsolved. And there's some haunting aspects to it. Ooh. So it's a duel. It's, it's a, a duel. duel. Double duel. Yes, it's happening. Okay, here we go. Feliska, Iowa. Villisca, Iowa is a small town that's about two miles wide and has a little over 1,100 residents. Its population has gone down in the past 100 years, though. Back in the early 1900s, over 2,200 people lived in the town. So that's like a pretty bustling town for, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the day. Back in the day. For small, you know, middle America. So it was a thriving and close-knit community. And it was a great place for developing businesses and a magnet for local tycoons to capitalize on the area's growth. So this was like a good place to start your business, a good yeah. place for you to, you know. Every time I hear that word thriving, I always think of 30, flirty, and thriving. thriving. Yes. I love that movie. Yes. 13 going on 30. Yeah. Yes. So during all this, in 1912, the Moore family were well-known residents in the area. The Moore family consisted of Josiah, who was 43, and a successful businessman in town. He became wealthy during his 30s and went on to marry Sarah, who was 39. Sarah Raw. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's always a Sarah. I know. Always. <laughs> I'd be scared to be named Sarah. Yeah, like, <clears throat> I, you know, you just go, Sorry, girl. <laughs> go with God. Because Sarahs are left and right up in here, which is a very common name for the time, too. Oh, yeah. But anyway, point is... And so Josiah, Sarah have four children Hmm. and their names are Herman, who was 11, Catherine, who's 10, Boyd, seven, and Paul, who was five. And they were very well liked throughout the area and gained a reputation of being generous and kind. They were a church going family who had strong contacts and relationships in the community. But Josiah had a few enemies in his personal and professional life as well. On June 9, 1912, 
the Moore family had spent the day at their Presbyterian church who were having a Children's Day festival. Sarah was on the planning committee for the event, and the Moore family stayed all day for the event. The festival would end around 9.30 that night, and all the children finished their performances. After all the children <laughs> finished their performances. Um, which is late. Yeah, that is late. That's real late. Mm-hmm. It's 1912. Y'all just out here partying up at the church festival till 930. That's all. That's long. They had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> so at the end of the and night. And nap time. Yes, and a nap. They're like, okay, we're having our we're having our group nap time. <laughs> um, so at the end of the night, Mary asked Catherine. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Okay, so I put Mary in my notes, and it's Catherine. And so now that I've started again, because I took all of the other stuff out, I've said Mary again, and it's Catherine. So I'll just let y'all hear that. At the end of the night, two of Catherine's friends were afraid to walk home alone in the dark. Catherine decided to ask her mom if the girls could spend the night. These two kids were 12-year-old Lena and her sister, who was eight, Ina, so Lena and Ina Stillinger. Sarah told Ina and Lena's family that they were staying the night and then they all had milk and cookies before turning in for the night. It was documented that due to an issue between the town council and the electric company, the power had been shut down on June 9th. So the whole town was pitch black. Like, Mm-mm. no power in the entire town. So, electricity was restored the next day, but the news <laughs> electricity was stored the next day, but a news reporter referred to June 9th as the darkest night in Velisca's history. And there'll wow. be two reasons for that. Well, here we go. Yep. The next morning, Mary Peckham, which I guess this is where I got Mary from, a neighbor of the Moors was hanging her laundry and thought it was weird she hadn't seen anyone out during their daily chores. Around 7 a.m., Mary noticed that there still wasn't any activity at the household. So who knows when Mary was up moving around because if she was alarmed by 7, yeah. I feel like chores, like everyone's doing their chores at like 4 in the morning. 4, 5 a.m. Yeah, like everybody's just folding laundry and doing their like daily chores like <laughs> break a dawn. The sun's coming up, get up! Yes, like it's time. So she's like, 7 a.m., nobody's outside? This is weird. So Mary decided she was going to go check on the family. Mm. Yep, so she knocked on the door, and there was no response. So she tries the door handle, and it's locked, which was weird in 1912. So I guess she was just going like bop on up in there, but mm. the door was locked, and she's like, now that she's, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. So now that the doors were locked, and they weren't out doing their chores, Mary's really concerned, and she goes to Josiah's brother, Ross's home. Once they're back, Ross tries to knock one more time before using the spare key to enter the house. When he goes into the downstairs guest room, he finds a headboard soaked in blood with two lifeless bodies with their heads covered with a few articles of clothing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. He immediately ran out of the house and called Marshal Henry Horton. Marshal Horton arrived at the house with doctors Edgar Ho, J. Clark Cooper, and Minister Wesley Ewing from their Presbyterian church. When they went inside, they discovered that all six members of the Moore family and the two Stillinger sisters were brutally murdered. Aww. I know, they got everybody. It's so bad. Sad. I know. So... All eight people in the household were attacked and beaten with the blunt end of an axe to the point that they were unrecognizable. Gosh. Yeah. Sarah and Josiah 
both showed evidence that they were attacked with the sharp end of the axe as well. Sarah had a clear slice wound on her face, or had clear sliced wounds on her face, while Josiah's wounds showed each end of the axe was being used. It's thought that the killer or killers started with Josiah and Sarah before going to the rooms of the children, then finally going downstairs to where the then finally going downstairs to where the Stillinger sisters were sleeping. No one was decapitated or dismembered, but in Josiah and Sarah's bedroom, the ceiling showed gashes from the upswing of the killer using the axe. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's intense. Yeah. So it's really bad. So now I'm going to go into a little more about, you know, what they think happened and everything. So if you're a little, you know, you know, just a little trigger warning just for anybody who may need it. So the crime scene suggested that no one had woken up during the murders except for Lena Stillinger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think she's she's the 12 year old. She's the older sister. So people investigating the murders thought that each victim was struck with one deadly blow to the head one by one with the murder or murderers going back to strike the bodies repeatedly after they were all dead, which like, why? I don't know. So the reason they believed Lena woke up during the attack is because her body was found hanging slightly off the bed with her nightgown pulled up to her chest. Her underwear had been slung under the bed. However, there was no evidence showing that she had been sexually assaulted. She also had a defensive wound on her arm. So thank God. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, we just don't know what happened. And the killings are thought to have taken place between 12 and 5 a.m. It's thought that the killer hid somewhere in the house Mm-mm. or on the Moore family's property while the church activities were going on that day, possibly in the barn, watching and waiting for them to return. Investigators investigators struggled to find a motive at the crime scene after searching the property they couldn't find anything that had been taken from the house except Josiah's keys so they ruled out robbery and I think that there was you know like jewelry and money left laying out or something you know so it was like this obviously wasn't the motive at all Yeah. yeah a sexual motive also seemed unlikely since none of the victims showed any signs of trauma there was and this part's really weird. A two-pound slab of bacon found at the scene, wrapped in a dishcloth, cloth, cloth, dishcloth, dishcloth, near Lena Stillinger's body. This led investigators to suggest, ooh, this part's bad, that it may have been used as a makeshift vagina by the killer. But no evidence was found to suggest that that was the case. Mm-mm. It was more likely the killer was planning to steal it and forgot to grab it on the way out. Oh, shit, my bacon. Yeah, <laughs> left, left my bacon. Like, That's what I'm going just with. just slaughter a whole family. Yeah, between the two, I want to go with he was going to steal the bacon steal the and bacon. left. Yeah, that's... That's what we're going to go with. <clears throat> he was trying to steal that bacon, and he mm-hmm. left it, so... Okay. Other than the slab of bacon, a plate of food, and a cleaned but still bloody axe was found at the scene along with a bowl of bloody water on the kitchen table. The killer also searched through the drawers and found the garments to cover mirrors and glass panels in the doors. Cigarette butts were also found in the attic, meaning someone was probably hiding out in the attic until the time of the attack. Yeah. 
it's just creepy that he went through and just covered everything yeah, up like weird. that. And then this, the in the attic thing, see, this is what I was talking about. This for I don't know if Forrest listens. Mm-mm. Well, this is this is the kind of stuff I think about with the attic situations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was just like, Mm-mm. and the cigarette butts. I was shook. This is why I freaked <laughs> out that night. If anybody who, who used to work with us knows the story, this is why. So any other evidence that could have proved useful was soon destroyed because word spread through the town quickly and the townspeople started filling the crime scene and trampled over any evidence mm-hmm. that the killer may have left behind. Why did they do this? Because they're ignorant. Like literally this has happened time and time again. Somebody's dead. Somebody's been murdered. They just start trampling on up in there and they're just taking pictures and looking and, and taking stuff from the crime scenes and I'm like, yeah, can y'all like- not? Remember that one case I done and the cop picked up? I was like, why are you pick? Stop picking stuff up. Leave it alone. Made me so mad. Yeah, no, it's just a mess. It's always a mess. So, there have been several suspects mentioned over the years, and these are the most common ones. Frank Jones, he was an Iowa state senator who used to be Josiah Moore's boss. Josiah had been a salesman at his farming equipment business but after working for frank for seven years josiah left and started his own business it was a rival company and the rumor is that josiah took some of frank's most lucrative contracts with him as he left i mean so you gotta hustle you gotta do what you gotta do, you do, you gotta do. <laughs> but i mean you know who knows he may not even try to get them to come with him they, they just may just wanted, wanted to. to they're like oh you were so great we want to go with tell, you you can't tell nobody that Mm-mm. <clears throat> so you know there was that this caused a lot of strain to his relationship along with another rumor that josiah had an affair with frank's daughter-in-law oh, no. yeah so it's like it's just not it's sounding messy you know stuff like that be coming out all the time yeah so he's you know who knows <clears throat> Who knows what really happened, but so there's these rumors like this was going on and he stole the people. So this guy does not like him. The Presbyterian congregation in the town was split in half. Some of the members thought Frank was guilty. The other half showed their support for the senator. The police looked into Frank, but he was quickly ruled out in terms of having committed the crime himself, but it didn't rule out him being involved in the Mm. murders. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes. James Newton Wilkerson, a member of the Burns Detective Agency, thought that, that a, thought that a man of Frank's standing and wealth wouldn't get his hands dirty, but would have hired someone else to kill him instead. So, could, could be. Maybe, maybe not. Mm. Another suspect was William Blackie Mansfield. James Wilkerson believed, and then, you know, that's the detective dude, because mm-hmm. I almost forgot, <laughs> believed William murdered his wife, infant daughter, and in-laws with an axe in Blue Island, Illinois, two years after the Velisca axe murders took place. Other than murdering his own family, Wilkerson believed Mansfield was responsible for the murders of Roland Hudson and his wife, Anna. This murder took place just four days before the Velisca killings in Paola, Kansas, which had many similarities to the Moore murders, according to Wilkerson. Hmm. Yeah. So, there's this guy just murdering his wife and in-laws and their daughter, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he thought they could have killed somebody else along with the Velisca murders. So, 
There's that one. In 1916, two years after being identified as a suspect, William Mansfield was arrested. Wilkerson said he proved that Mansfield was in Villisca at the time of the murders, but his payroll records confirmed that he was working in Illinois when the murders took place. After his release, Mansfield filed a lawsuit for damages, even, nope, against James Wilkerson, and he won. So he was like, oh, you trying to act like I'd have murdered somebody out here, but I didn't. So now he didn't sue him. So Wilkerson was ordered to pay $2,225 to Mansfield. Okay, so this is 1912, and I don't have an inflation in here, but that's a lot of money. Yeah. So he really, he really got got. Even after all this, James thought Frank Jones had something to do with William's alibi. So, we're still kind of on Frank Jones, but on, you know, the Mansfield. Now my mom is calling me. Okay. Um, How about you? The third and very popular suspect is Reverend George Jacqueline Kelly. Okay, now this is the big one. He was arrested five years after the murders took place in 1917. Kelly was in Villisca the day of the murders and attended the same Children's Day at the Presbyterian Church as the Moore family. Okay, mm-hmm. so this, this is a reverend we're talking about. The preacher had the reputation of suffering from mental problems and being a sexual deviant. This wasn't even the first time that he had been arrested. He was previously arrested for sending dirty letters to several women and in, yeah, mm-hmm. like he nasty. <laughs> and in the days before the murders, he was caught peeping through windows in the area. Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom. Nasty letter writing Tom. Ugh. All the things. Okay. So around five o'clock in the morning, the like on the day that the bodies were found, Kelly boarded a train out of town. While he was on the train, he spoke with a couple about these... While he was on the train, he spoke with a couple about these horrific murders that had just taken place. The conversation would have been two hours before anyone checked on the Moore family and discovered their bodies. So, like, he's talking mm-hmm. to them, but like I said, it was 7 o'clock, she was concerned. So, 5 o'clock in the morning, he's talking about these murders. Like, nobody knew mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Another suspicious act against him was the bloody clothes he sent to a nearby town for dry cleaning. Like, why your clothes burn? Why, why they bloody, sir? Why? Explain. <laughs> Care to explain? Please and thank you. Kelly would end up returning to Villisca a few days after the murders and seemed to be almost obsessed with them. He wrote letters to the investigators and family members trying to get more info on the murders. It's even said that he approached the investigators during the case, like while they were working on the case, mm-hmm. and told them that he had been sent by Scotland Yard and demanded a tour of the home that the Velisca Axe murders took place. Sir? Jessica, I got my buff finger face. <laughs> I'm looking at, did you like, buff finger? Yeah. <laughs> After his arrest, he confessed to the murders under intense and forceful interrogation. Because you know, back then they didn't care. They just beat the fire mm-hmm. out of you. Uh, He told the detective he killed the children upstairs first, then went downstairs and murdered the other family members and the Stillinger sisters. He claimed he was doing the work of God, but he later recanted this confession. The couple, who also claimed to have spoken to Kelly on the train, recanted their statements as well. The first trial for Reverend Kelly ended in a hung jury, but the second trial killed 
killed him. <laughs> cleared him. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he did. Killed him. Cleared him of the murders. Since Kelly was only 5'2 and 119 pounds, just little. Mm-hmm. Just a little man. Uh, they felt he wouldn't have had the strength to inflict the wounds that were found um, at the scene of the crime. But he admitted to it, and it sounds like what we found where the Stillinger sisters were last, Mm -hmm. the people downstairs were last. So, you know, Mm. I don't know. The last theory that I have is that the murders uh, could have been the act of a serial killer. There were several households around the Midwest that were attacked between 1911 and 1912. Here are a few of them. One mentioned earlier was, you know, Roland and Anna Hudson in Paola, Kansas, that Wilkinson, Wilkerson, I can't even remember if it's Wilkerson or Wilkinson, because I think I used two different um, articles, articles, and I think they'd have messed it up. So whoever, <laughs> thought, whoever, you are. whoever you are, thought um, Mansfield had committed. So there's that one. There was another attack that happened September 1911. A man, two women, and three children were killed. The victims were between two households, the Burnham and the Wayne family. The husband one of, the victims, of one of the victims was arrested, but later released due to lack of evidence. Mm. October 1911, uh, 19, <laughs> October 1911, William and Pauline Showman and three children were murdered in their home in El- Ellsworth, Kansas. Why did they leave the kids alone? I, uh, well, they were, no, they didn't. <clears throat> They were all they were all killed. I said, why don't why can't they leave them alone? Oh oh, the, like the murderers. Kids. Yeah, I know. Like I don't want you know anybody being murdered, but kids. I know they killing everybody. They just don't care. They really don't care out here. In 1911, so they were discovered on the 17th by a neighbor who entered the house after no one responded to his knock, but they had been murdered the night before. They were a young lower class family with young children as well, all under the age of seven. Mm-mm-mm. It's horrible. These murders were also thought to be linked to the ones I just mentioned in Colorado Springs. September 30th, 1911, on Monmouth, in Monmouth, Illinois, a brutal triple murder happened and an innocent man was sent to prison for them. And an innocent man was sent to prison for them. John Wesley Knight, a 35-year-old black man, was sentenced to 19 years in Joliet Penitentiary for the murders of William E. Dawson, his wife Charity, and their daughter, 13-year-old Georgia, as they slept in their home. This was another crime scene that hundreds of citizens surrounded and compromised evidence. Like, Mm-mm-mm. just run of the mill. They tried to bring in bloodhounds, but they had no clear scent to follow, and it had rain. Wonder why? <laughs> I know, just get, y'all just tramp, tramp, trampling <laughs> all over everything. And they're probably like, whoa. Why can't they find anything? Because yeah. <laughs> y'all oh. have been here. Get out. So, yeah, they didn't have a clear scent. And it rained after the murders as well. So, just not it's not going well. Knight was eventually released from prison, possibly for health reasons. He developed a severe lung ailment and asthma in October of 1931 and entered the Warren County home due to his wife being unable to care for him. And... He died in 1932 in March. Hmm. Yeah. So this poor man just, you know, there were two or three other attacks as well in Iowa and Washington over this time period. Despite the distance between locations, the killings could all have easily been committed by the same person due to the railway system. 
and four out of six attacks, the killer had covered the faces of the victims, just as the killer, you know, did with the more Stilliger family. Mm-hmm. One noted difference stood out in the Hudson attacks. Their faces were covered first, then they were attacked. This is the exact opposite of the Velisca murders, but both killers washed their hands and left behind the murder weapon in at least three different attacks, or in at least three of the attacks. It also appeared that in nearly every case of the attack, the murderer would be hidden away before attacking the victims. Oh, yeah. Okay, so here's another one. Um, you know, this is another... Murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On December 17, 1912... In Boone County, Missouri, 38-year-old Henry Lee Moore used a rusty axe to brutally murder his 63-year-old mother, Georgia, and 82-year-old grandmother, Mary Wilson. I know. Moore, who had no relation to the family slaughtered in Villisca, then left the scene to return to a nearby hotel at which he had been staying. At the hotel, he cleaned up the blood of his family members off his person as best he could before settling down for the night. The following morning, Henry Lee Moore returned to the family home and quickly reported his ghastly discovery to his neighbors. The police soon arrived on the scene and hastily went about dismissing Henry Lee Moore's tale that he had just arrived back in town that morning to celebrate Christmas. Investigators soon discovered that Moore had spent the night at a nearby hotel. On searching his room, they found items of clothing covered in blood, with more blood found on his bed sheets. When questioned about the discovery, Henry Lee Moore was unable to give a response, and he was arrested for the murders of his mother and grandmother. Henry Lee Moore was found guilty of the murders of his relatives on March 14, 1913, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. One of the men investigating the Velisca Axe murders, W.M. McClary, soon came up with the theory that Henry Lee Moore was possibly the man responsible for the murders of the Moore family in Villisca and other similar murders. Despite looking at Henry Lee Moore extensively, little in the way of evidence was ever found to link him to any of the murders that took place, you know, between 1911 and 1912. But he was released from prison in 1956 at 82 after having his sentence commuted. The Moore family and the Stillinger children may well have been a victim of a serial killer, but it's unlikely that it was Henry Lee Moore. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, so it's been over 110 years since the Velisca Axe murders took place, and the house still stands. A woman named Martha Lynn bought the house in 1994 and restored it to its 1912 condition, hmm. stripping the place of all electricity, plumbing, and turned it into a tourist attraction. This house is also known to be haunted and has been on ghost adventures, most terrifying places in America, which is where I heard the story first. Most terrifying places in America is just my show, okay? Any of these paranormal things, I probably saw it on there first. And, you know, other paranormal shows, it's been featured on as well. Some of the things that have been documented in the house include children's voices whispering, laughing, or playing with toys. A little girl that likes to growl at people. Mm-mm. <laughs> like, no, no, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> Objects moving on their own. Doors opening and closing. Loud footsteps are also heard throughout the house. Apparitions and shadows. Lots of activity at 2 a.m. when the train passes through the town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Light fog in the master bedroom. 
and it moves from room to room, a dripping sound that many feel is the sound of blood drill, drill stipping, still dripping on the floor. Mm. Feeling like you're being followed, people have also reported being scratched and a heavy... People have also reported being scratched and a heavy and oppressive feeling feeling to the home. Why did I just repeat feeling? Feeling, feeling. Feeling, feeling. One of the most disturbing things to happen since the murders happened back in 2014. Now y'all ain't ready for this. On November 7th, my dad's birthday, a visitor was rushed to a nearby hospital after being found with a self-inflicted stab wound to his chest. His name is Robert Stephen Larson, and he is from Rhinelander, Wisconsin. He was staying the night in the house, which can be done for around four hundred and twenty-eight dollars. Hmm, that's not that's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> just no, no, thank you. Well, I'm good. Gas is only four dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Lord help. So yeah, like this, you know, $428. I, I just can't. Mm-mm. I don't want to stay the night there. I'm afraid. Um, but he, anyway, he was staying there with a group of friends for a recreational paranormal investigation, according to Montgomery County Sheriff Joe Sampson. From my, and this is Joe Sampson, I'm quoting. Mm-hmm. From my understanding, he was alone in the Northwest bedroom and the rest of the party was outside. First of all, why are you in the house by yourself absolutely not insane that's insanity mistake number one insanity no (sighs) okay (laughs) while the rest of the party was outside he's up there and he called for help on their mobile two-way radios his companions found him stabbed in the chest and apparently it was a self-inflicted wound they called 911 and lorison was brought to a nearby hospital before being helicoptered to Crichton University Medical Center in Omaha. Helicoptered. <laughs> helicoptered. <laughs> Life flighted. I don't know why they used helicoptered. Um, but yeah, so then he had to go to Omaha, Nebraska, because he had to get life flighted. So according to a Montgomery County police report, the incident happened around 1245 a.m., which is said to be the approximate time that the 1912 murders of Josiah and Sarah Moore, along with their four children, children, that the 1912 murders of Josiah and Sarah Moore, along with their four children and two visiting girls, took place. The man has recovered from his injuries, but Martha, the owner, has not commented on the incident out of respect for his family. Hmm. And that is the story of the Velisca Axe murders and the haunting of the house. That was a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of killing going on. 1911, 1912. Like, a lot of killing. A lot, a lot of killing. I'm like, bruh, what is going on? I don't know. There's also some stuff about, <clears throat> and I think I talked about it in the Axeman, too. Some people think that the Axeman and the Velisca Axe murders, you know, that they're one and the same. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's some stuff that seems like it could be, but some that isn't. I feel like the M.O.s are pretty... There's a lot of differences. Yeah. Like, he chips away. Like, these people waited, broke in. Like, broke in, waited. Or waited, then broke in. Yeah, you know, and just killed them, left, 
went on, this person, like the X-Men in New Orleans, he was just going, and it was Italians. It was a lot of Italians that he was, Yeah. you know, so it could have been racially, racially, racially mm. profiled. Racially? Is that a new word? It is. I make up new words all the time. On this. <laughs> you know I do too. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay, so that is my story for today, and... I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it, Chaucer. Yash. Good, good. So, let's see. You can send us your questions, comments, concerns, requests at a million murders at gmail.com. And you can go to our Instagram at a million murders and like our pictures. <laughs> we post pictures of the cases or sometimes. If we do like ghost things, sometimes they don't have pictures, but <laughs> do we haven't caught a <laughs> You can go on there, like, comment, and we also have a Facebook page that we don't really do much with yet, but you can start a conversation, start an argument, or a debate. <laughs> debate Not necessarily debate, debate. an argument, but a debate. And tell your friends, family, dog, cat, squirrel, you see a squirrel right now, <laughs> hey, go listen to a million mothers. Yes, yes, tell your family, tell your friends. And thank you all for listening. We hope you come back for a, a million, million more. more. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye.